Tonight's scripture reading is slightly changed. It will be Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. We're continuing to sort of look at the uh, in a kind of summary way of the various themes of the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking at how the Gospel changes the way in which we live completely. And uh, tonight we're taking a look at this parable, which introduces us to a problem and then provides two alternative solutions. In the parable, Jesus introduces us to a, really a universal problem, the problem of righteousness, and then gives us two guys, each of which represents a particular solution to the problem, one of which, one solution of which does not work, one of which does. Problem, solution that doesn't work, the outside-in solution, and an approach that does work, the inside-out. Now, first of all, let's talk about this problem. And what I mean when I call it the problem of righteousness is the background or the assumption of the whole parable as you can see, is here in verse 9. It's about a man, the Pharisee, who is extremely concerned to establish a moral righteousness. And when we uh, think about that today, we immediately don't connect. We don't connect. The word righteousness almost doesn't, we don't almost, almost don't use it anymore, except in a negative way. Uh, we might use it to, when we talk about someone being righteous, we mean rigid or condescending. So the word almost means nothing. And you look at the passage and you say, well, maybe in traditional cultures, uh, people were very concerned about traditional moral scrupulousness and righteousness, but that doesn't really seem to be very relevant to us today. And the answer is, you're wrong. It is. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word righteousness, the words, both Greek and Hebrew words righteousness, basically have to do with being approved, accepted, passing scrutiny. Some examples. Imagine you've got a daughter and uh, you got in the mail a, a letter. She'd been trying to get into this school. And the letter comes and says, your daughter has passed all of our tests. Your daughter has passed all of our scrutiny. And your daughter has been admitted to this, the finest school in the country with regard to this or that thing. The finest school. She's passed mustard. She's been accepted. She's been approved. How do you feel as a parent? You just say, oh, that's nice. You know, maybe she'll have better job prospects. No, not at all. You've, there's a deep satisfaction. There's some, the, you never forget that letter. You never forget it. Something deeper is going on than just pragmatics or even parental approval. 
Uh, or let me give you another example. One of my favorite scenes in movies is uh, in Fisher King when uh, Parry, who's played by Robin Williams, gets a date with Lydia, who's played by Amanda Plummer. And uh, Lydia in the movie is a, is a very uh, uh, shy, introverted uh, woman, young woman, ha has very, very little self-regard uh, uh, or self-esteem, and, and is sure that if anybody really gets to know her, they're going to reject her. But for, uh, she has this date. Robin Williams and Amanda Plummer, they have this date. And at the end of the date, the evening's over, they come to uh, her apartment, and she says, I had a wonderful time. I never want to see you again. And Robin Williams said, what? And then here's how, here's how the script goes. Lydia. Well, you see, this is how it works. We'll exchange phone numbers, and you'll leave. And I'll go to work, and I'll feel so good for one day. And then you won't call. And then you won't call again. And then you'll never call. And ever so slowly, I'll turn into a piece of dirt. I don't even know why I'm putting myself through this tonight. It was very nice to meet you. Goodbye. And of course, Parry grabs her and says, wait, wait, I have a confession to make. I have a confession. You're married? She says, no. You're divorced? He says, no. Here's my confession. I already know all about you. And not just from tonight. I know that you hate your job. I know you don't have many friends. I know you feel uncoordinated. I know you don't feel as wonderful as everybody else. I know all about you. I know all about you. But I love you. And I think you're the greatest thing since Spice Racks. And I would be happy to be knocked out several times if I could just have that first kiss. And I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't be distant. And I'll always call. I'll always call if you'll let me. And then Lydia, at the very end, she touches him like this saying, you're, you're real? And of course, she's transformed. Why does the writer, why does that movie writer know that that's going to get us? Even though all Robin Williams movies are maudlin, it still gets us. Why? Why? Because when a woman, when, when somebody who is desperately afraid of someone knowing her to the bottom, scrutinizing her to the bottom, that it happens and she's still loved, she's approved, she's accepted. She passes the scrutiny. It's going to get us. Why? What's going on? There's something deeper than, in these illustrations, there's something deeper than parental approval, deeper than vanity, deeper than hormones. Something else is going on. And it's not just with us. Look, here's a culture, an ancient traditional culture. And here you have a man who's very concerned for moral scrupulousness and righteousness. And we look at that and we say, we can't really relate to that. Oh, really? Maybe we've just psychologized it. Maybe we just use the term self-esteem. But are you sure we don't know anything about this? What are we hungry for? What are we desperate for? Or let me, um, in every culture, I was reading some old, I, I'm starting to do some reading of old northern mythology, the Norse legends, the Finnish legends, the Kalevala, and, and Anglo-Saxon stuff like Beowulf. At the very end of Beowulf, now these are, these are uh, you know, ancient pagan, northern European legends uh, and cultures. At the very end of Beowulf, when the great king has died, here's what they put on his, um, uh, on his tomb. They say, of all men, he was the most hungry for glory. See, in that culture, that was a compliment. 
In fact, it's actually an untrans... I mean, the, the commentators on this say, we say, it's kind of... A, it's almost untranslatable. In Anglo-Saxon, the word is lof, L-O-F. Lof, geneorst, and it means to be hungry for glory, to be hungry for a renown, to be hungry for acclaim. And of course, in that culture, that meant glory in battle. But it was considered... Every, in that culture, everybody was hungry for glory on the battlefield. And of course, in this ancient, this ancient Jewish culture, the idea of getting glory on the battlefield was kind of repugnant. And to us, it's repugnant. But are we, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are we not, though, making, the, though we cannot relate to the cultural form of this, are we not talking about the same thing? What are they hungry for? What are we hungry for? I was uh, on an airplane with uh, a friend of mine, Mako Fujimura, who's a Japanese artist. Some of you know him. And I was saying, at one point we were talking, I said, I said, you know, are there a lot of poor Japanese in Japan? You know, I was asking about how the society worked. He says, my good, he says, there's a lot of homeless Japanese in Tokyo. He says, but they're, 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 it's pretty interesting. I said, oh, really? Tell me. He says, well, yeah. He says, in Japan, if you lose your job, you don't come home and tell people because it's, you are ashamed. And not only that, your family doesn't want to know. It would be too shameful. So what you do every day when you lose your job is you come home, you don't tell anybody, and every day you put on your suit and you leave. And you hang out with the other people who also don't have a job. And he says, after a while, if you can't get another job, you know, you don't come back. You don't tell people. You just don't come back. I said, why? He says, it's an Asian thing you wouldn't understand. He says, there's, there's shame there's a, lot, there's a loss of face. Well, now, maybe he's wrong that I wouldn't understand. What is going on? In every culture, in every century, there's a different form of it, but there's a hunger for something. You know what it is? A hunger for approval. A hunger for acceptance. A, hum, a hunger for a, a verdict. Anyway, we laugh, or we, we might scorn, you know, their need for glory or their need to keep face. And of course, they look at us and they scorn $8 billion on Botox and liposuction and going to therapy about our self-image all the time. And I, we, we have a psychological version of it, but here's what it is. In uh, Arthur Miller's After the Fall, at one point, one of his characters is explaining what happened that really screwed his life up. And here's what he says. He says, for many years, I looked at life like a case at law, like a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart. And then later on, what a good lover you are. And then later on, what a good father you are. And later on, how successful you are. Whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption. I felt I was on some kind of upward path toward some elevation where I guess I would be justified or even condemned, but there would be a verdict. I now realize my disaster began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight, no God. And all that remained was this endless argument with myself, the litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is another way of saying, of course, despair. Now, what is he saying? What's this character saying in Arthur Miller? It, this is it. This is it. We desperately need a verdict. We need someone from outside of us to come in and say, you're approved, you're good, you're worthwhile, you're great. We are all glory hungry. We are all renown hungry. You can't give this to yourself. If you say, 
I don't need anybody else's approval. It doesn't matter what other people say. All that matters is what I think. If you do that, you kill yourself. You harden yourself. You make yourself evil. The only people who do not care about anyone else's opinion are evil people. Who cares what these rabble think? Who cares what these peons think? I care about no one's opinion but my own. You know what that means. So if you do that, of course, you go in the direction of evil and hardness. So where are we? We're hungry for approval. In our culture, it's sort of self-esteemish and psychologized. In other cultures, it had to do with battle glory. In other cultures, it had to do with moral rectitude and scrupulousness. But we're all desperately hungry. We are all starved for this. Someone from outside has to say, you're all right. Someone from outside has got to assure you you're all right. And yet, no matter how much we seem to get it in, it never seems to be enough. Never enough. Where would this universal problem come from? If it's universal, if it's all centuries, and if it's all cultures, it has to start from the beginning, and it did. Because Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 tells us that in the beginning, when we were absolutely certain of God's approval, we lived naked and unashamed. When we absolutely knew God's approval, we were naked and unashamed. What does that mean? It meant we didn't need to spin. What pe- we didn't need to control what people thought of us. We didn't need to hide what people, who we really are. We did- when we were absolutely certain of God's approval, we weren't living, we weren't needing anyone else's. We lived free. We lived large. But when we lost our certainty of God's approval, when we decided to be our own masters, and we started experiencing alienation. We developed a, a lofgenorst. We, lo- we, we began to experience a glory hungry, hunger, an approval hunger, a self-esteem hunger, an assurance hunger that seems to never be satisfied. And that's the problem of righteousness. That's the problem of... We, we, righteousness means to be approved, to be accepted, to pass scrutiny, and it's a problem that we all have. It's a huge problem, and everybody's dealing with it. Now, Jesus says, let me tell you one common way that people deal with it that doesn't work, and let me show you the way that does. And the way that doesn't work and the way that does are represented by these two figures, okay? Here we are in verse 10. Uh, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, the one approach represented by the Pharisee is what I'm going to call the outside-in approach, the other approach, represented by the tax collector, is what we're going to call the inside-out approach to righteousness, to the solution. There's an outside-in solution to righteousness that doesn't work. There's an inside-out effort at a solution to righteousness that does. So the outside-in we see in this Pharisee. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, that word means cheats or embezzlers, by the way. I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Now, let's look at the marks of this particular strategy, the outside-in strategy. First of all, notice the, ex- I guess I'll just call it the externalism of this man. Externalism. What I mean is his understanding of sin and his understanding of virtue is completely external. It has nothing, it has, it's completely focused on behavior and violation of or keeping of rules. It's not looking inside. It's not looking at character. It's looking outside at behavior. So, for example, sin is perceived completely in terms of discrete individual actions. I do not rob. 
I do not commit adultery. I do not cheat. I give my money 10% away to the church and to the poor. I fast, which means I pray twice a week in, a, in special ways. I go to worship. I do my religious observances. Notice he doesn't say, I thank thee, Lord, that I'm getting more patient. I'm getting to be a kinder person. I'm getting to be a gentler person. I'm able to love people I used to not be able to love. I'm, I'm, I'm able to keep my buoyancy and my, my joy and my peace even when things go wrong. He's not talking about those things. He is absolutely externally focused. His understanding of sin and of virtue is completely oriented to external behavior, keeping and breaking rules. First, externalism. The second thing we see here is what I guess I'll call separatism. Now, by separatism, where do I get that? There's a, there's a preposition here that in every single translation you pick up, it's going to translate it differently because it's deliberately ambiguous. It's a Greek preposition, and it's in verse 11. It says, the Pharisee stood up and prayed. Now, in this translation, it says, about himself. In other translations, it'll say, by himself. It's a, del it's a, it's a deliberately ambiguous preposition because it means both things, as we'll get to the second one in, the, in a minute. But the first one is here. When it says he stood and prayed by himself, almost certainly, uh, commentators believe, it means he stood away from everyone else. He, you know, he moved away from the crowd, probably closer to the altar, probably closer to the center, and he stood up getting himself away from everybody. And you can see that almost certainly physically he was acting out what he's saying verbally, which is, I'm not like them. Separatism happens like this. If you conceive of sin almost completely as individual external actions, then that means that sin is something out there. It's not in here. It's something out there, and I can almost completely avoid sin if I just stay away from people who do it. If sin is basically certain behaviors, then I can avoid sin by staying away from other people who, who do those behaviors. So I can avoid sin if externalism leads to separatism. I stay away from people who don't share my values. I stay away from places or processes or I, I don't read books. I don't look at plays. I don't go to places where people don't share my values and don't, uh, and don't follow my rules and don't behave in my way. Because if you, if you have an externalist understanding of sin, you'll have a separatist view of life. We just stay away. And the third thing we see besides externalism and separatism is what I'm going to call cultural imperialism. Notice something very interesting. He says, I am so much better. Verse 9 says he's looking down on everybody. Uh, verse uh, 11, 12 says, I am not like these other people. Why? I am better than these other people. Why? I don't rob. Now, that's in the Bible, right? Thou shalt not steal. I don't cheat. I don't commit adultery. That's in the Bible. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay. I, don't, uh, I, I tithe. That is, I give 10% of my income. That's in the Bible. And then he says, and I fast twice a week. Did you see, he slipped that in there. Because there's nothing in the Bible about fasting twice a week. There's nothing in God's law that requires that. In the Mosaic law, you did uh, fast on Yom Kippur. That's once a year. But what he's doing is, he says, I don't rob, they rob, that makes me better. I don't commit adultery, they commit adultery, that makes me better. I fast twice a month, twice a week, they don't, that makes me better. And there's something going on here that you need to see. It's one thing, because, you know, by the way, robbery is wrong, just for the record. <laughs> Adultery is a sin, just, just so nobody wonders what I think here. But when it comes to fasting, 
there's nothing in the Bible one way or the other about this. This is a neutral thing. This is something he wanted to do. This is something he chose to do. And what he's done is he's taking a personal preference or a cultural custom, and he's raising it up and sneaking it in to the divine will. And not, so he doesn't say, I fast, you don't. That means that I'm different than you. He says, I'm, it's, it makes me better than you. He's taken a neutral thing, a personal or cultural thing, and elevated it and given it moral significance and uses it as a way of feeling better than other people. Now, I want you to know, let me be real direct here. If you are not glory satiated in the center of your being, and I don't know who is, but as we're going to see, Jesus is going to show you how you can get start to at least move in that direction. If you are not filled with a sense of approval in your heart, if you are not utterly sure of who you are, that's another way to put it, if you do not feel so incredibly valued and loved, if you are not satiated with, with, with a sense of approval, you're going to do this too, and you do do this too. You take things that are, have nothing to do, they're not God's will. They're just cultural differences. They're tastes. They're neutral things, but we endow them with moral significance. So hungry are we for approval. So hungry are we for glory. So hungry are we that, to, for reassurance that we're okay. So, for example, <clears throat> let's take the Christian church. There are some churches in which people worship like this. They're emotionally expressive. And there are some churches where people take notes. And they're very quiet. And they sit and they think about things. You know, there's some churches that when people, when the Holy Spirit falls, everybody gets convicted, they get louder. And there's some places where when the Holy Spirit falls and they get convicted of sin, they get quieter. But do, does the one group look at the other and say, they're just different? Nah. Oh, no. Not by and large. Each one thinks the other one is superficial. The one says, you know, those people over there, they don't seem to get moved by God. That God doesn't seem to move them to the bottom of their being. That's superficiality. But the other group looks over there and says, look at those people. They're just so emotional. They're not growing in understanding. They're having an emotional experience. That's superficiality. One group is saying, they're quenching the spirit. They're quenching the spirit. Is there anything in the Bible about how fast the music should go, how loud the music should be? Is there anything in the Bible about how emotionally expressive you should be? No, but what we've done, we've taken our way, our culture, our custom, our preference, and we've sneaked it up in there, up in the top there, along with robbery and adultery. Oh, yes, we have. Why? This is the outside-in approach. Now, what is this? We, we say, I don't like myself, I don't, which is where we all start. I don't feel approval. I need a sense of assurance. So I'm going to live on the outside first in such a way that on the inside, eventually, I feel good about myself. I'm going to be better than other people. I'm going to be very good. I'm going to be very moral. I'm going to do that. It's outside in. Guess what? It doesn't work. Look at this guy. He's going around saying, I am great, Lord. I am great, Lord. Now, listen, when you're great, look, for example, I'm very tall. Do I go around saying, I'm tall? You're not. No, why? Why don't I go around telling everybody how tall I am? Because, because I am tall. When you go around saying, I'm great, it's because you know you're not. When you go around saying, I am righteous, because you know you're not. When you go around saying, you have to realize what a good person I am, what a hardworking person I am. I'm hardworking, and I'm good, and I make sacrifices, and I really try. And if, if that's your attitude toward, toward life, you're always feeling sorry for yourself because you try your best. And things aren't going the way you ought to. What's going on here? It's an outside-in approach. Why do you look down your nose at other people who are just different than you? 
Why do you tend to separate from people sometimes who don't have your politics or don't have your, your, uh, your behavior or don't have your morality? Why? The outside-in approach says, we start on the outside, I'm going to live this life in a certain way, and then that'll make me feel better about myself. I mean, it's not just in religion. I mean, the guys say, I am going to get gridiron glory. I'm going to be a great football player, then beautiful women will throw themselves at me and want to marry me. You know? It's the same thing. As to say, if I live a good life, then I can know that God approves of me. If I live a good life, then, I can, then, then God owes me. And see, this is how the outside-in thing works. My wife sees this, by the way. She, long ago, she said, you know, when you're being the absolute best minister and the absolute best husband and the absolute best father and the absolute best man, and you're, you're overdoing it practically, you're working so hard, it's so that you can say to everybody else, now don't bother me, don't ask me for anything. You have no right to demand anything of me. Look how good I am. Look how hard I'm working. Long ago, my wife caught my number on that. And you see, I, I really, no offense to everybody else, but I don't think I'm that different than anyone else. Nietzsche called this a long ago. This is the reason why he did not trust morality. He says, when people are moral, they're not moral, except as a power play. I'm very good. So now, God, you've got to give me a good life. You've got to approve me. You've got to listen to, uh, to my prayers. I'm being very good. You have to respect me, everybody. But it doesn't work. Because if it really worked, if you're really sure, if you really had the approval on the inside through your working on the outside, you wouldn't be so insecure. You wouldn't be so unhappy. You wouldn't have to be telling everybody about it. You wouldn't have to be reminding people of it. You wouldn't be so upset when criticism came. It doesn't work. And what's interesting about this particular example here, this particular person, this Pharisee, uh, Jesus tears the top, the external, as it were, the cover, off of what's really going on in the heart of so much religion and morality. We have to keep in mind, if this is going to work, brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors, if this is going to work, you have to understand that this Pharisee is not a hypocrite. When you see the word Pharisee, never think hypocrite. There are some. There certainly were. There were certainly people who were righteous, but, you know, in, you know they were murdering people behind. But that's, that's no indication of that. This is a good man. When he says, I give 10% away, that means he's generous to the poor. When he says, I don't commit adultery, that means he's a good husband. Here's a good man. But look at the prayer. Jesus does this, I'm sure, on purpose. It's almost, it's almost a caricature, but he's trying to make a point. Whenever you start a prayer like this, I thank you, Lord, that. Whenever you thank, when you write a, <clears throat> excuse me, whenever you write a letter of thank you to somebody, aren't you thanking them for things that they have done? I mean, wouldn't that be right? I mean, what, what, you know, for example, when you say, I thank you, Lord, afterwards there's supposed to be the things that God has done. But look at this. He says, I thank you, God, and that's it. That's the last reference to God you're going to find. It's all about him. And what God, Jesus is showing, this is astounding, self-worship. Underneath the veneer of God-centeredness is utter self-centeredness. Underneath the veneer of all the God talk and all the God activity and all the morality is adoration of the ego. You got, in Luke chapter 15, just have to realize how shocking this whole parable is to the listeners. In Luke chapter 15, we have a bad man, the son who goes off, the younger brother who goes off and he squanders his father's money and prostitutes. And you have a good son, the elder brother who never disobeys. Same thing here. 
You have a really good man, the Pharisee, and you have a bad man. The tax collectors were collaborators. You know, I mean, like, if you remember, how, think about the collaborators with the Nazis in occupied Europe during World War II. How they, what they did. I mean, this is a collaborator. This is a, a gangster. This is a shakedown artist. This is a bad man. Here's a good man. Here's a bad man. What does Jesus say? The good man is saved. He's justified. No, that's not what he says. He says he's lost. And the bad man is saved. Why? Jesus Christ is showing us something that is at the heart of the gospel. And if you don't understand this, you don't understand the gospel at all. Jesus says, yeah, in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, we see human beings trying to be their own masters, their own gods, their own lords, their own saviors. But there's two ways to be your own savior. One is by breaking all God's rules, and one's by keeping all God's rules. But in such a way, so focused on the external, that you can feel so good about yourself on the outside, that then you say, now, God, you owe me. And you look down your nose at other people. In both situations, to, to break all God's rules or to keep all God's rules, as a way of earning your salvation in both situations, you are not depending on God's radical grace. There are two different ways of being your own savior. There are two different ways of being lost. There's two different ways of basically rejecting God as savior. Even though what's so bad is when Jesus says in Matthew 21, he says the prostitutes and the tax collectors get into heaven before the religious leaders. He's not saying it's okay to be a tax collector. He's not saying it's okay to be a prostitute. What he's really saying is, that both good people and bad people in their natural state are being good and bad for the very same reason, to get God actually off their back, to be in control of their own lives, to be their own saviors, to be their own masters, to be their own lords. You understand that? But the only difference is religious people don't know they're doing it. Irreligious people do. Irreligious people know they're avoiding God. Irreligious people know that. They know they're trying to be their own master and lord. Religious people would never believe it. They don't believe it. As a result, they're in worse shape. It's the reason why over and over and over again, Jesus shows the bad boy and the good boy and the bad boy being saved and the good boy being lost. And the bad man and the good man and the bad man being saved and the good man being lost over and over and over again. Why? Because the outside-in approach not only doesn't work, but it's so deadly because though irreligious people and religious people are both avoiding God as Savior, the religious people don't know what they're doing. And they're shocked if you tell them about it. And therefore, they can't, they can't fix it. That's how, that's how dangerous it is. That's how difficult it is. So the outside-in approach, I do good on the outside, so I feel approved on the inside, doesn't work. Worse than that, it brings a horrible spiritual blindness that can le lead to absolute spiritual destruction unless you listen to the parable. And so the second thing that Jesus shows us here is how do you then handle right, the problem of righteousness? How do you handle your problem of approval? You've got a problem. I know I've got a problem. How are you dealing with it? How are you dealing with this incredible hunger? Jesus says there's only one way. It's the way that the tax collector goes. It's not the outside-in way. It's the inside-out way. And here's, here's the inside-out way. He says the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Look carefully. Here's how you can finally solve the problem of righteousness. Number one, there has to be a whole new way to understand repentance. He does not actually say 
what you see in the English translation. God be merciful to me, a sinner. It doesn't actually say that. It uses a definite article in the Greek, and I guess the translators here just decided it would be too confusing. But he doesn't say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And this almost probably certainly means, almost probably certainly, that he's not comparing himself. See, if you think of sin externally and comparatively, like the Pharisee, there's always somebody who's done more sins than you. So if you're thinking of sin sort of externally and comparatively, you're only ever a sinner. You're never the sinner. But this guy is thinking of it in absolute terms. I doubt that he's actually saying he's the worst sinner. What he's really saying is, all I know is I'm lost and where everybody else is doesn't matter. He is thinking of sin the way you and I ought to think of sin. If you want to fix the problem of righteousness, don't look at what you've done wrong. Don't look at the discrete individual actions. I'm not saying robbery is okay. I'm not saying adultery is okay. But you can't start there. See? This man knew how to repent of adultery and robbery when they happen. This man repented of his sins, but he didn't repent of the sin underneath the sin. And here's what you have to do. You have to, at some point in your life, if you want to understand the gospel and be changed by it, you have to say, Lord, there have been periods in my life in which I've lived pretty bad. I've done things I shouldn't have done. And there's periods of my life in which I've been pretty good and I've kept my nose clean and I've done the right thing but I now see that the reason I did the good things was pretty much the same reason for which I did the bad things. I've always wanted to be my own savior. I've always wanted to put you in my debt and not want to live in your debt. I've always wanted, I've always wanted to look down on other people. I've always been doing this outside-in thing. Always. Sometimes religiously, not, sometimes non-religiously, always. And it hasn't worked. I'm still so hungry for approval. I'm still so needy of assurance. I repent of the sin underneath, not only my sins, but even my good deeds. I repent of the motivation that's been driving me all of my life. I don't want to be dependent on your radical grace, but today I throw myself on your mercy. Now that's the first thing, is you have to be willing to go to that whole new way of repentance, but then secondly, there is a whole new way of finding approval. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and when he uses that word merciful, in the Greek, it signals something very intriguing, which doesn't come across in English. Because the word mercy, usually when you use, see it in the New Testament, there's a Greek word, a perfectly good Greek word that's always used, elios, and in fact, you know, later on in this chapter, which was printed here, which you didn't read, there's a place where, for example, the blind man cries out and says, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's the normal word for mercy, but not here. The tax collector is using a word that literally means atone for my sin. It's the word halastrion. In the temple, there was a holy of holies. And there was a place where God spoke, his Shekinah glory dwelled. But it was over the Ark of the Covenant in which was the law, the Ten Commandments. In other words, you could not come near God without being scrutinized by the law. So who in the world could pass the scrutiny of the law in order to see God? But over the top of the Ark of the Covenant was a gold slab called the mercy seat. It was called the halastrion, the very same word that the, that the uh, tax collector is using here, and almost certainly he had it in mind. On the mercy seat, once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest could come back in and talk to God only because he put the blood of a substitute who died to pay the penalty for the sins of the people on the mercy seat so that the law's scrutiny was satisfied, that the law's penalty had been fulfilled. This word, 
halastrion is used in Hebrews 2.17 of Jesus. Because in Hebrews 2.17 we're told that for this reason Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God that he might make halastrion, propitiation, atonement for the sins of the people. This man is not saying, God, let me off. God, lower your standards. God, just overlook my sins. That doesn't help with the problem of righteousness. What he's saying is, Lord, I need atonement for my sin. Well, where does it come from? Here's how it comes. Jesus Christ became the sinner. He became the ultimate sinner. He died on the cross for us. He was looking at you and me, I believe, when he looked at his disciples, falling asleep on him at his moment of greatest need. Remember in the garden, he says, he says all I want for you to do is just stay awake, and they keep falling asleep, and yet he died for them anyway. And here is how Christians deal with the problem of approval. You have to know that, first of all, Jesus loved you so much that he made atonement for you. And secondly, he made such atonement for you that now he can love you. What does that mean? He can come in. Once he died for you and paid the penalty for your sin, in spite of all of your, the, the things that you've done wrong, now you're accepted in him. You're utterly approved in him. First of all, he loved you enough to come and do the atonement, but once he does the atonement, the atonement means he can come in and give you approval now. You don't have to wait to the end of your life to say, did I live a good enough life? Jesus has done it for you. Jesus is the propitiation. He is the atonement. He is the thing that the, that the, the tax collector was looking for. And that changes everything. It's inside out. It's not like religion. If I do good on the outside, eventually I feel approved on the inside. But the gospel is you can be utterly sure of God's approval utterly sure of his love, utterly sure that he's seen you to the bottom, but he loves you, and he'll call every night, and he'll never let you go. And if you, if you start inside with that knowledge of that approval, then you, on the outside you'll start to live like you ought to, but it'll be different than the way the moral person lives who's working outside in. Let me give you an example. It's a very, very interesting example. I just found it this week. I was talking to a guy who had been raised in an incredibly conservative, legalistic church. And as he grew up, the one thing that he was told over and over again was, you have to witness for Jesus. You've got to witness for Jesus. You've got to tell your friends about Jesus. You've got to bring them to church. You've got to get them saved. You've got to witness for Jesus. And it just crushed him, and here's why. He couldn't witness for Jesus because... He desperately needed people's approval. He was afraid of offending people. He was scared of what they were going to think. He couldn't witness for Jesus because he needed their approval. But he needed their approval because he didn't have a certainty of God's approval. But he didn't have a certainty of God's approval because he wasn't witnessing. That's what his church had told him. It was outside in. You better witness. You better see people saved, or you cannot be sure of God's approval. See, you see, what, you see the problem? He couldn't witness because he needed their approval. He needed their approval because he didn't have God's approval. He didn't have God's approval because he wasn't witnessing. And down and down he went. And this is how outside in this works. Because on the inside, you don't get approval. You actually get more nervous. You get more unhappy. You get more proud. You get more grumpy. You get more touchy when people criticize you because you know you're not living up. And one day, he came into a church of a friend of mine and... Uh, in that church, he began to go through a renewal, and he began to understand the gospel, and he began to understand that actually Jesus' salvation is inside out. You don't start with behavior and move in for approval, but you start with the absolute sense of approval, and then it changes your behavior. And he started to figure this out, and he went in to see this minister, a friend of mine, and he said, 
I have a question. He says, I know that Jesus has done so much for me. I'm supposed to witness for Jesus, but I'm just scared. I just can't witness for Jesus. You know what his friend, you know what the pastor said? He says, that's all right. Jesus will still love you. He says, what do you mean Jesus will still love me? Well, he said, remember, that is the gospel. He has died to pay the penalty for anything you do wrong. He approves you, utterly approves you, utterly loves you in spite of the things you've done wrong. So, you know, if you, if you don't witness for Jesus, you know, he, don't forget, he'll still love you. A week later, somebody came to the pastor and said, what did you say to that guy? He's going around everywhere talking to people about Jesus, witnessing for Jesus. What did you tell him about witnessing? And the pastor says, I told him he didn't have to. But let me tell you something. He was liberated. But when you witness for Jesus outside in, when you're witnessing for Jesus to get God's approval, you're grumpy, you're overbearing, you don't do it at the right time, you are so unattractive, you are so unwinsome, you might as well shut up. But when you witness for Jesus, when you serve people, when you help the poor, when you do anything inside out, starting with the inner approval, don't you realize you're so much better at it? You're so much more kind, you're so much more careful, you're so much more laid back, you don't need to. And therefore, you're so much better at it. If you start to do inside out instead of outside in, righteousness. If you start to live inside out with Jesus in the gospel, it's going to change everything. You might still help the poor, but you're going to do it so much differently. Not paternalistically, not grumpily. You might still witness. You're going to be so much more attractive. You're going to do all sorts of things, but you're going to be different in every way. You're not going to need to prove yourself. The touchiness will be over. Oh, my friends. And one more, one more thing. Wouldn't it be interesting if some of you went home tonight saying, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these Pharisees, these legalists. These people who don't understand salvation by grace. That's why I came to New York, because there are hardly any of them here. They all live back where I came from. But I am so glad. I thank thee, Lord, that I am not like these legalistic people, these outside-in people. I'm an inside-out person. But you know what? There's always outside-in stuff hiding inside your inside-out life. Always. Do you know where it is? Have you found it? Can you see it? There's a world of grace ready for you. Plunge in. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us a hint of how different we can be if we begin to understand what your Son has done for us. He has, you have been merciful to us. He has been the atoning sacrifice. He loved us so much that he atoned for our sin. And then he atoned so much that now he can come in and just love us and approve us completely to the bottom. Father, every single time we see uh, in any text, in any movie, in any play, in any book, uh, an example of how free, affirming love transforms, we have just a taste, just a hint of what can happen to us if we give ourselves to you in the gospel. We pray that you would change us as you have promised tonight. We give ourselves to you through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.